You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to be sharing an all-new episode with you today. And we are in Europe for the entire time. First stop is the Netherlands, where we sit down with Kevin and Amber of Stax Diner in Amsterdam, a recently opened American-inspired diner. We talk about the road to opening, using a European ingredients to cook American food, and what you can expect on the soundtrack every time you swing in. And then we're heading over to Barcelona, where we sit down with Sergio Diaz de Rojas, whose new album, Huerte and Una Tarde de Verano, came out on March 10th, so just two days ago. It's a beautiful album. We talk about his family, his grandfather and great aunt's inspiration on him and what it was like to throw parties at his house when he was a kid. And yes, it's everything you think. It is a lot of music, a lot of wine, and a lot of great food. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
Kevin and Amber, thank you for joining us all the way from Amsterdam. And I got to say, I wish I was sitting with you in Stax Diner having a beer because it looks absolutely cozy right now. It is. It is. We've got these cute little glasses here, too. No, no. It's it. I, I saw the, the beveling on, on the outside of the glass and I'm like, just pour them. Pour them short. Keep it cold. Keep it coming. Right. Yeah, that's kind of that seems to be the philosophy here. I really took to that when I moved here and would go to these little brown bars and the old men drink little, even smaller yeah. than this. And uh, I'll butcher the way you say it, but in a flautia, it's like a, a flute, you know, but it's a little thinner you know, sort of glass. And that's exactly the point. So it stays cold. Yeah, I mean, I don't need a 20-ouncer at once. I'll take two two tens. Um, so you two have the privilege and pleasure of being our first restaurant we've ever had on the show from Amsterdam. And while some people might know some other cities in, in Europe and not part of the world, most people in America probably don't have a great grasp on the local culinary scene. Could you give us a little bit of an insight of what it's like? What type of restaurants people can expect? What's the community vibe? Let, I'm going to let Amber go first on this. This is her 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 uh, stomping ground. Yeah, um, I I feel like there's a, a couple of groups of people that have been like um, setting some standards for Amsterdam for a couple of couple of years for sure, and they have like a certain type of style. Like there's uh, the guys from Benefizer, for instance, they that have like a couple of uh, restaurants and they always open like different types of concepts and they're like super creative kids. And there's this guy in North who also does quite similar stuff, um, opening like bars, opening restaurants, opening clubs, mm. uh, very exciting for like, um, young people living here. It's always something, yeah, a little bit like edgy, uh, what they do. And I feel like, um, yeah, that's been super nice to have that. But also because there's like it's a small uh, group that's been opening multiple restaurants. It's been super nice to have something that has not been done here before. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something like Stax Diner is like so new. And I hear it from all the people uh, that have been in my community. Like, wow, this is not something that I've ever seen before. Or like, I've never eaten like this before. Yeah. But at the same time, it's so funny because it's so similar to, you know, like all the food that we eat because there's a lot of different layers of, of culture in it as well. well. And, and also, mm. I think, I mean, just to, to step back too, yeah, like at least my perception and just studying and talking to people about food, you know, a lot of people will say in Dutch culture, the food's not very good, you know, that sure. uh, historically there wasn't a, a love of food here, you know, mm-hmm. uh, depends on who you talk to, you know, like, and this is coming from Dutch people telling me, you know, no, no, of course, of course. looking at food or looking at extravagant eating as kind of not necessary or, yeah. you know, and maybe that's rooted in some of the, the Calvinist aspects of the country or <laughs> uh, that far back. Yeah. No, I mean, but it is it's also <laughs> like a lot of, well, no, because they had a real time of exuberance and riches. Sure. And then there's a real humility now to the culture of like kind of moving away from mm-hmm. there has been for a while of not being too showy and, not wasting money on things. They're frugal. Um, going Dutch is, you know, a real thing. Right. Like, right. So, right. Yeah. And, but what's happened, what Amber's talking about is in the last few years, there's been just a real rise of more contemporary food culture here. Yeah. And definitely the youth scene, there's much more of an interest in food. 
And I think, you know, a lot of these young chefs, especially Dutch chefs, are figuring out, well, what is Dutch food for the first time on a contemporary? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And since like five years, there's been like some stuff going on about um, like Dutch cuisine. And what I feel that it is, like it's very personal to me, um, is that it's been very much about the history of uh, crops that we've been having here. And also just like looking at like what 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 is the thing that we cannot find in the supermarket anymore, but has a lot of history with the Dutch culture. So right. you see, for instance, the, the carrots, you know, like the rainbow colored carrots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How we chose the, the carrots to become um, orange at a certain point, um, because it was like a very uh, Dutch thing. Like <laughs> we wanted to have, have everything in orange. So because it's like a national color. So um, the carrots, uh, we wanted them orange. So they became orange. So like small things like that, I've been like uh, coming back into the kitchen a lot. And the style of cooking has been always to me a little bit of a mix between um, French, German, Italian. Mm, mm. And then with the produce that has like all of that history. Uh, and in, in the contemporary in- scene, I feel like Copenhagen's had a big influence on yeah. this. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. You know, sure. I mean, I think what, what to, to say is that there's like a lot. Amsterdam's a pretty exciting new food city because there it's a really new uh, thing to have this many different options and all of these new chefs that are Dutch and finding and figuring out and writing the next chapter for for what that means. And what's interesting about Amsterdam, like New York, is well, what does it mean to be Amsterdam food or New York food? And it's kind of a pretty international transient place, you know, a lot of people right, yeah. in and out of here, they've historically been trade like a, a country that trades a lot. You see their thumbprint in New York. Um, you see that over here in the West, you know, and in the South, like it's a really diverse area um, too. And there's like, you know, it's, it's one of those cities that, you know, it's a cool place to open a diner because a diner concept can kind of be very flexible and it sort of has to yes. absorb, the area around it and kind of reflect the owners and reflect yeah. the locals. And, you know, it, it, it makes, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense um, to do something like this here because you can be really inclusive and do a lot of different stuff. Um, also interesting because in America, there is this concept of, of a diner and it's like, you know, a greasy spoon with eggs and pancakes and things like that. But when you really dig into diner culture in America, it is much more melting pot. And depending on where you are in America, whether it's, um, you know, up in Queens where you have like Greek diners down the South where you have more of like a Southern bent or, or things like that, or even in Jersey where you have like pasta and Italian bent, it is this like melting pot of American food. And so looking at it from the outside in, from the Netherlands to America, what is the perception of American food? What's the perception of American diner? Is that even a concept because I feel like it's so specific to um, the states. Yeah. What do people think about it just as a general concept? Depends on how you talk. Yeah, it really does depend. But if I look at my own perspective and like how I met Kevin and hmm. like the moment that he told me, like we, we met at a market and then we met on the street again and he just told me like, hey, I'm opening a restaurant, but I had no clue what it was going to be. And then he took me into the space, showed me everything. He was like, I'm going to, I want to open an American diner. And I was like, oh, fuck. Um, is it going to be like uh, pancakes and, <laughs> you know, like, and burgers and fries? And I was like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Like, I don't, I don't even like cooking fries. I don't even like fries. I don't know. It's a weird thing. But 
Um, and then he really starts taking me through like the whole menu. And it, it, w- it was so strange because it was all very familiar in a, mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. way, but it was not so in front of me. Like it was not available to me. You know, mm. like it, it's, it's so strange. It, like open a small door of something that felt very familiar, but has never been available. So it was quite a quite an experience. Well, and I think we're doing a pretty progressive concept with the diner. Like, you know, I mean, I grew up in the South. My mm-hmm. reference points are like actually Greek Southern diners. So imagine a Greek yeah. restaurant, yep. get Spanakopita, but the way they did their barbecue chicken is with like a North Carolina style vinegar sauce, you know? And so you would have this like melting pot kind of, you know, these kind of places. And then, you know, over the years, I've worked at a lot of different contemporary spots in Richmond. But then when I got to New York, there was a restaurant called Diner that we know. We've eaten there together, Mm -hmm. Darren. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, one of those places that really blew up. And their flip on the diner was we're going to have, you can, you know, their set menu was like an omelet and a burger. And then every night they had 10 different specials, Mm -hmm. trays, desserts. And that's how they really did it. And so it was, you know, kind of part of this moment of you know the food really kind of changing and the way people were doing concepts, yes. stuff like this in brooklyn during this time a lot of people laugh at this now this very hipster i know or whatever people want to classify but regardless those guys were doing something really great you know and i think what we're doing is kind of a you know we're doing something new and interesting but in a very different way in that like we have a much more expansive set menu we do do mm-hmm. some Um, but I'm Southern, so I want biscuits and cornbread on the diner menu, right? Like, uh, we're not a Southern food restaurant, but that's one of the staple things of like our bread program is for and Amber's really good at, she has a baking background actually before moving over into also doing savory food. So she's, uh, incredibly good at executing uh, and developing the recipes together of, you know, for biscuits, cornbread, key lime pie. I mean, we're making homemade fucking graham crackers here, breaking them back down and making the crust for a lime pie out of it. So, I mean, I never, we, I've never, you don't see a lot of that, you know, uh, at these types of, of spots, right? So there's a level of finesse that's going into this, but we're not presenting food in a way that's stuffy. It's very yeah. comfortable. It's very ingredient driven. It is what it is. Uh, it's not a lot of composed dishes, actually not much at all. Uh, none of the main entrees or plates are really that composed. Maybe it's fish and greens or, you know, steak and mashed potatoes. It's, it's simple stuff. But then the, yeah. the stuff that we're using in the way we're cooking things, you know, comes from a range of different experience that we have that's a little more high technique. Uh, mm. We joke around. It's low country, high technique. It's kind of like hmm. that's sort of the tension that's coming together. You know, the other thing about a diner is – the design part about it because so many of them, you think of these like Chrome monstrosities and some, and some are a little bit more humble. And Kevin, I know that you have a big design background as well. Um, But obviously bringing that sort of American perspective, both the design and food into a European country, some people might be like, we're okay, Mr. American, like, please do not come in here and tell us like, how to design our menus, how to design our restaurants, like we're good. How did you ingratiate yourself in a local food scene? Because I know you were there for a few years before you opened this spot, but what did you bring with you? How did it evolve? 
how did you do it with respect to the to the local scene? Um, I mean, it's there's multiple parts that I mean, I met a lot of people here. I owe a lot of credit to my friend Malvin Wicks. He's like a legendary DJ here. You know, you're in a scene of house music, electronic music. Yes, he dabbles in that, but he's like bigger in hip hop, R&B as well. And can kind of bring all those roles together. He's, you know, very well known guy here. And he is, a, you know, as we joke, we're both fat kids. We just want to eat all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. He knows all the chefs. He knows a lot of, you know, different people in the food scene. And he really took me around and introduced me to a lot of people. So I met a lot of folks that way. And I think, but I think the way I learned about Dutch culture was through the Dutch Brown Cafe. And the mm. Dutch Brown Cafe are these, there's a lot of 100, 150, even 300 year old brown cafes in Amsterdam. Wow. And it feels like you're inside of a boat. It's really dark. It's really woody. They have a lot of different beers. It's a lot of, you know, it's kind of sleepy. Um, and when I first moved here, I really spent a lot of time in those places talking to people because I, of course, am working on, again, like you mentioned, global design and branding projects for mm-hmm. Nike, Gordon, and, you know, doing a lot of different hospitality and hotel work here in Europe. Uh, but then I really just enjoy going and kind of being anonymous and sitting at a brown cafe at a bar and talking to random Dutch folks to learn about, well, well, what do you think of Americans? And I can tell you, I've pissed <laughs> two of them off where they're like, they listen to me talk. They're like, you're too fucking ambitious. You're so American. All you care oh, yeah. about is work. And, you know, that you European should- ceiling that you sometimes learn about. Yeah. yeah. And then they, yeah. and then it takes me about an hour and a bunch of flouches, a few small beers here and there. And usually sure. we've charmed them and we've come back around and we're hugging and we understand each other. But I spent a lot of time there trying to understand what that is. And there was something I kept seeing in like the function of a brown cafe and the function of a diner, mm. you know, in that you can meet the wealthiest person in the Netherlands at a brown cafe and you can yeah. sit down with someone who doesn't care about money or working at all and is. I live in Wester Park where it's like an old socialist sort of area. And you have a lot of people who hate money and are the anti-exact opposite. Those same people, though, are sitting around at the same counter, drinking beers, hanging out. And there's something to a diner that does something similar. There's some great equalizer in a diner counter. Um, You know, and so when we came into this, that was the design approach aesthetically was I was, you know, wanted to bring together, you know, uh, the wood warmth the dutch have a term hazelic probably saying that wrong too hazelic hazelic um which speaks about coziness and the root word of it is hazel which is companion or friend Mm -hmm. and i think the ways it speaks to that full comfort you have with your best friend Mm. temperature and the perfect light and the perfect moment and you feel this really present kind of specialness so that's what these dutch brown cafes are and it was like how do you bring that to the american diner aesthetic um, and how do you avoid the cliche American diner fifties sort of bullshit that I think everybody mm. expected us to do here. Sure. And so that was the design, the diagram, and that was the challenge. And I was able to find some old Pennsylvania Dutch diners yeah, that, sure. that were really woody, had a lot of wood and they were like kind of seventies in style. Um, and just studied some of the right refs and pulled those things together. And then I worked with someone who's French and Pennsylvania, grew up in Pennsylvania, but was born in Paris and she's an architect named Pauline and we worked together to flesh out the design over, you know, a period of a few months. But I don't know, we were really trying to be very cognizant not to be those asshole Americans coming in and trying to slap something purely American because again, a diner has to reflect Amsterdam. It can't just be an American concept. So yeah, um, yeah, that was, 
that was the approach. And that's how we got to this place. And it's this real hybrid of like, you know, lots of painted uh, high gloss wood. Uh, we found an American oak tree that got hit by lightning through a friend. So we were able to upcycle the wood. It's really like a more warm, darker, grainy wood than European oak. Um, you know, was, a lot of these things fell into place naturally. Um, and that was the, the sort of design approach. Um, well, I am excited to hear a little bit more about the menu you put together and how you bridge the gap, at least with the cuisine as well. And I want to take a quick musical break. We have a song from the archives. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the dishes, about how it's been received and how the opening went just a few weeks ago. Here we go. Song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Amber Lux. How'd I do? Good? Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and Kevin Kearney of Stacks Diner all the way from Amsterdam. And we were talking a little bit about the design and the research you put into it. And I want a little bit move over to the food because, you know, Kevin, you mentioned bringing biscuits and you guys are talking about using rainbow carrots. And I think it's one thing in theory to have this ideal of saying like, hey, we want to push food in a certain direction. But as my friend Carter Adams once said, the French are going to French, which I've always taken to be like, listen, you can try, but we're doing, you know, we're doing the recipes our way. So yeah. how have you been able to merge these two cultures, the American diner, um, to fit, you know, um, the Amsterdam palette? And what has been the response to some of the dishes that you haven't compromised on? Yeah, so... We've been using a lot of uh, Dutch produce. Like we've been really focusing on um, getting everything very local. Um, so that's also always been one of the um, focus points. That okay, it's a diner and it's going to be in Amsterdam. Like Kevin already said, you know, like it's going to merge a little bit with the um, uh, with the environment that you're in. So we've been getting um, beans that are have history with uh, Holland. They're called soldier beans. Mm. This is something that um, that that we're going to put on the menu eventually. Um, we have, for instance, a seasonal winter salad that we only use the vegetables that are actually grown here. So it's not like you're going to get a cucumber or a, a tomato or anything that's mm. not um, going to fit this environment. Um, also, all, all of the meats. Uh, we have a very beautiful uh, local farmer, um, Johan. And he actually rotates the the pig pens with um, his garden so just to keep the, the the ground fertilized. So these are things that um, I feel like it's very Dutch. Also, what we've t- talked about, like you know, like getting real deep into like the the Dutch produce and having yeah. a little bit of that, that, that history just like flowing into the diner. And at the same time, I've noticed that cooking with Kevin and um, like getting to know this um, American heritage through you, mm-hmm. that it connects so much with things that I have eaten in my youth. And I had like, my mom's from Indonesia. She cooks everything, but my dad, he only cooked like um, cabbage, green beans, sausage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my, my dad's a liver and onions guy. My mom cooks the world and my dad's got like one dish. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. My dad had the same thing and it was you know, sometimes when we eat stuff here, it's it just brings me back to those moments. Mm. And there was also this moment that um, uh, I was I was on the bike and I was thinking about this thing that my mom used to make, and it was uh, cornflakes covered in chocolate, and then she put like these little um, smarty things on top of it, and it was like mm. day she would make that like as a snack. And I called Kevin up and I was like, "We got to make this." I don't know. It, I, it feels right to put something like that on the menu. And he was like, yeah, it's called a crunch bar. I was like, what? <laughs> no way. <laughs> like, how is that possible? So it's like constantly these small little things that I feel like so connected to to the the Or like the, the apple butter. Like, or like I, the apple butter, you know? Yeah. Mm. You know, one of the things on the menu is like a breakfast sausage that, you know, I when I was growing up, my stepdad, his family had a pig farm and my his dad is so tight. Uh, and so for Christmas, you know, what does he give you? Apple butter from his apple orchard in a jar. 
and sausage from a pig he had killed and ground the, the sausage up. And it's like a hot sage kind of sausage. So I was like, let's put that on a biscuit, uh, you know, hot sage, so- breakfast sausage, apple butter, buttermilk biscuit. And I gave her a bite. She just went, had the full ratatouille moment. <laughs> mm. Those same flavors of like, but you know, of pork and apple, Yeah. you know, um, but anyways, yeah, I think, you know, the first, this, it's interesting because for me, I cook with a lot of different people. I mean, I think the food is have the opening menus, obviously I wanted there to be some Southern staples. Yeah. Yeah. We don't call it a Southern food restaurant. We actually talk about home style cooking. It's written on the awning right outside mm-hmm. when you come in. And I think for us and what we're doing is it's home. It's like cooking and being at home, but it's a little nicer than a Wednesday night at your house. Maybe it's more like the full spread at your grandma's on a Sunday. That's mm. a little bit more robust and there's more attention to detail. And, you know, maybe you wear a sweater or something or whatever. But um, so that's kind of the conceptual umbrellas around homestyle cooking. Of course, this opening menu has a lot of North Carolina references. I used mm-hmm. to work with Gregory, who grew up in South Carolina and did, did a, has built a pretty good reputation with James Beard out of Richmond with Alla White mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, Roosevelt. And um, he, you know, I, I, there's a lot of influences in the food I do and way of cooking from him. But then also, you know, in New York, I worked around some great chefs and cooks like Cesar Ramirez and Peter Serpico and people like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that led me, those guys had a lot of influence from Arzac and some of these places in Basque country. So when I moved to Europe, I went to Northern Spain, spent a ton of time and I couldn't get over the simplicity and ingredient focused way that they cooked. Like, you know, just like a whole roasted fish, the most simple shit you've ever had. It's the best mm. turbo you've ever had, or like a big steak or like, which they call a chuletan, or when you go and get razor clams, it's not a lot of composed dishes. It's the best razor clams you've ever had. Yes. Cooked mm. perfectly on the plancha, put on a plate and that's it. That's what it is. So there's something to, you know, a lot of different influences that kind of came together and what we're doing and we're just sort of making up the rules as we want. So the menu is, you know, we've got pimento cheese and pickles. We're making mm. some pickles, some pickles from a guy that's killing it locally. This dude alone. Um, we're, you know, doing really nice big cuts of, of like uh, this pork that we get that's, you know, farmed 15 minutes away or an hour away, depending on which farm they pull from. We can only get it every two weeks though. You know, and we're sure. working, we're rotating through the animals. So we're buying a Boston butt, we're buying ground pork for the sausage, and we're buying a limited number of chops. And so we kind of work through all of that over the course of a weekend versus, hey, you can just always get a pork chop here. It's not, you know, that reliable, but most Fridays you can get a pork chop, but then it's going to sell out. Uh, same thing with the, any of the other meats and stuff that we're doing. It's, you know, buying stuff that's pretty local. Uh, a lot of organic and bioproduct, but we don't limit ourselves to that because a lot of smaller farmers just can't afford to or aren't organized enough to really get the certification. But the way that they're farming is just sure. It's it's a name. It's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. So and for us, we're more I'm more interested in knowing the farmer than industrial organic. If I had to choose, I'm we're gonna go with a smaller farmer that maybe isn't certified organic. But we go and see what they're doing. They're doing things really responsibly um, and taking care of the land that they're working on. And that's better than just blindly buying some more mass market bioproduct. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've been open a couple of weeks and all this is great in theory and, and late night talks over 
small, <laughs> small glasses of beer. What was the reception? How have people responded? Um, how do you feel now that the public has, has gotten to enjoy it and have been able, of course, to have their say? This is in a newspaper today. Well, is- since this is an audio only yeah. podcast. I'll let, Amber, I'll let Amber tell you. She'll give you the local. What? How do you think people have responded? Well, I feel like the people in Amsterdam, they really like to try new things. Like it's, mm. it's been very much a thing. Like um, they love exotic things. They love to try um, things that they don't really know before. They, they like to go to new places. So what you see usually here in Amsterdam is like a new place opens and everybody goes there. It's like immediately like what's happening? What's going on? And you now like just, yeah, discovering a lot of different things. So I've never really felt like it was a concept that uh, people wouldn't understand necessarily. Mm-hmm. I always felt like it, it was familiar enough for people to just come, relax, do their thing, um, chill, and not be like too hyper-focused on what is this and it's so unfamiliar or anything like that. But the feedback I've heard, the, the, the phrases and things that I've sure. heard home for me are, and the de- design-wise, the place looked like it's been here 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Love it. So yeah. that's amazing. Food-wise, this is the place I didn't know I was missing. Like, finally, mm. place to get. There's a lot of smaller plate food here. People eat lighter. Uh, a lot of, like, smaller share plates. And this is, like, more about, like, getting a pork chop that three of you can split. Or getting a half of a brill, which is, like, a cousin of a turbo. Big flatfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A small halibut in some ways. Or, you know, and you know, getting a larger format piece like that, that you can split and have sides like cheese grits and skillet potatoes and mashed potatoes. And people, I think are really responding well to that concept. And it's yeah. cool. We have two different customers. Some bodies coming in here and they're more budget conscious. They want to spend, you know, 12 bucks on a biscuit. They get a beer uh, and a side they're eating for around 20, 22 bucks. And then there's another customer that's coming in and you know, they're eating a half of a brill themselves for 55 euros <laughs> two or three people, you know, and they just, they're, they don't eat out, eat out that much. And they're like, this is a big night. And I just want to. Sure. Yeah. So the reception so far has been excellent. We're in the paper today in the parole, which is like, what's that? The equivalent? It's like the local Amsterdam, New York times. It's the yeah, official. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we got, a, we got a, a like a the half, orange lady, if you will. Yeah, we got a three-quarter. We got a three-quarter page spread. Big photo. The headline says "A little slice of New York in the West," which there we is go. pretty awesome, you know. And they they really get it. And like, I think you know, one of the quotes in there that the the writer really liked that he got from us was that I think we're making we can make better American food here than in America. Because we get better ingredients. Of course, they love that. You know, there ha- there's course. a lot of pride here. Of course. Uh, and I will say, I, I haven't, I think Amber's, for example, the biscuits that we've developed and that we're making here that, you know, have Amber's fingerprint all over them are, they're the best biscuits I've ever had. And it's, it's, there's a lot of finesse involved, but also the level of buttermilk that we can get here mm-hmm. versus what it costs for you to get in America. You couldn't use that buttermilk in a biscuit. It wouldn't work. Right. So we can affordably get butter and buttermilk and the level of the type of flour that yeah. we're yep. I mean, she's driving out like an hour and a half, driving me crazy, driving out <laughs> an hour and a half, very specific flour from a from a mill, windmill that she loves. 
Um, and it, you know, when you bring all of these things together, there's a, like these biscuits are the, the best. I can't wait for you to eat them. It's going to blow your mind. Oh my God. I mean, let me, let me look at flights from to Amsterdam. Now I, I want to make sure before we, we, we have to say goodbye. Cause we've talked about the food and we've talked about the design, but I, and I know this because I saw some of the videos, but there's a great soundtrack at stacks as well. And I'd love to know what goes into it. How much of it is, you know, local music, European music, American music, What's the vibe? What are you setting? Who has control of uh, of the uh, iPod shuffle um, every it's, night? It's a mix. Uh, my wife Laura was killing it the other night. You know Laura really I well. Love her. She she um, she has really eclectic taste. I mean, mm-hmm. Laura grew up. Her mother was always dating jazz musicians in New York. So Laura grew up around and has and but also you know she has a she grew up in New York City. She has a lot of friends from South yeah. America. Uh, she has pretty interesting influences and musical taste. And the other night, like some music producer was in here and he comes up to me. He's like, who is controlling music? This is, this is impeccable taste. And I, of course I had to tell Lauren that, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. 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 You're like, listen, you can tell her, but like, can you, t- can you tone down the compliment a little bit? Just a yeah, little just bit. Don't boost her up too much, but, and it, it's a mix of that. She's from, got great so. taste. That's why you married her. I did. She has incredible taste and she grew up in New York city and there's an eclecticness to New York city. Like you can do in Amsterdam too, though. It's very eclectic, man. It's a collection of things that build, you know, the identity, uh, Othello, you know, my, my other business partner in stacks, he's a partner in the restaurant, but also we run stacks studio together. Mm -hmm. We have an office in Brooklyn and one here, you, you know, he's a Filipino kid that grew up in Virginia beach. And like, he has like, a whole those kids just have incredible taste in music. Mm-hmm. I met in Richmond, you know, uh, as you know, coming from Virginia Beach as well as like a crazy like breeding ground of like some of the best musicians in the world um, and most important culturally. Uh, and that crossover between like hip hop and indie rock and punk and skating and yeah. sort of that, that kind of flow. So Othello makes a lot of the playlists here. Mr. Wicks, my one of my you know good homies, I told you about that's really helped me here. He made a bunch of playlists for us. Um, So we have kind of a rotating list of them, and it's it's all over the place, dude. Just like all the references are, you know, for the restaurant. And yeah, people feel like people. I never thought people would come in here. I thought people would come in here and be like, "Oh, it looks American. It looks Southern. The food's Southern." But we get a lot of people being like, "I feel like I'm in New York in here." Um, well, I mean, New Amsterdam, if I, but Dutch people saying, Oh, I can tell you guys are from New York. Oh man. Is there, is there any better compliment in the world? It's the best compliment. And I think it's that eclecticness. It's just that eclecticness of like this random collection of all these different things that somehow kind of works. Awesome. Well, Kevin and Amber, congratulations. If people want to check out uh, what you've built and then also come by, where can they go? How can they follow along with your stacksdiner.com at stacks diner on the gram. Um, slide into the DMS. Let's yeah. get at us. Let's do stuff. That's what I did. Uh, cool. listen, thank you for the time. Oh man. I got to start looking at flights for real. Whenever okay. I I know, Please I know. Come. Please come um, with or without the family. We can do a boys trip or you can, oh we can God. fam it up. It's one of the best cities in the world for kids. No, I know. I got little ones and the little ones. I'm like, I want to bring you to Europe all the time because it's just the best. Uh, Congratulations. 
So excited. Thank you for spending the time. Congratulations on the article coming out today as well. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. 
Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Sergio, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for taking the time out of your album release week to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Very, very excited to to have this experience. Um, so this is Monday, and the album comes out Friday. I'm going to probably butcher the name of the album, but Muerte and Una Tarde de Verano. That was really good. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. How does it feel? How does it feel to have this album come out to come to fruition? It's it's very exciting. I haven't felt this excited about music in such a long time. It's it's my second album, eight years after the first one. So um, it feels almost like it's the first time again. Mm. Now, to be fair, you've released other music in between and you've done a ton of other projects. But, you know, eight years is a long time to put out something as your own album. Why the long wait? What happened? You know, what did you just not feel ready to put out something else that was this full scope of work? Uh, yeah, it's a combination of, of various uh, factors. I think um, in in first, I was in the process of moving from Peru to Spain, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of of things to take care about that didn't give me the the time or energy to really drown in in composing. Um, and then, of course, I, I didn't really feel that I had something to say. I, mm. I, I don't enjoy so much making music for the sake of making music. Mm. Uh, I really enjoy having like a concept around it and having uh, something I, I want to share with, with the world. So that's why the long wait. Mm. I was reading about the inspiration of this album, and there was two that came to mind um, that really I felt were like such probably on the same spectrum because they both relate to the inspiration of, of the music. But the first one I want to talk about was how cats and their movements played into this album. What is it about their animal and what is it about the, the way that they move around that uh, helped bring this album to life? Well, cats, there's, there's a piece dedicated to them in the album. Um, each piece is really dedicated to, to very important things in my life and, and, and cats are one of them. And I love this innocence, you know, the pure mm. pureness and innocence of, of cats and animals in general, which was kind of also the, the, the approach I had uh, when making the album. Everything was quite quite intu- intuitive, mm-hmm. if that's how one uh, says that. Mm-hmm. Um, like a child discovering something unaware of, of the world's uh, preconceptions, right? Very, very playful. Um, not only in the composing, but also in the sound design, the mixing, everything was quite um, innocent and intuitive in the sense and exploring like like a cat, I guess. Mm. I mean, it's it's beautiful. And there is a, a playfulness in the album that does really come through that you, you do get for when you see 
you know, maybe a cat and a sunbeam or something like that. Yes. Um, and the other is your grandfather figures a lot into this album and, and his passing. Um, I know you come from a musical background, but who was your grandfather to you? What was the inspiration? What's his role in this album as far as an influence? Well, um, my grandpa was uh, a very like popular musician at, at, at his time here in the, I think in the seventies or so. Um, and, and his sister, my, my, my great aunt Elsa, uh, she was, or she is uh, an amazing pianist and composer. Mm. Um, and having this kind of, 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 of um, influence in the family of inspiration, it's, it's really special. I, I don't think often about it, but um, sometimes it, when I'm feeling down or, or, or with not a lot of uh, motivation concerning my, my craft, uh, remembering that, that I have such talented and, and, and wonderful musicians in, in my family can be a, a really nice uh, boost. Mm-hmm. Um, my my grandpa didn't really s- see me play piano much. Only once when I was just twelve years old, I think, um, and I didn't really enjoy his talents that much because I was too young to 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 of be course. interested in, in, sure. in. I didn't even know who he was when I was a kid. Um, now, as a, as an adult, I have really uh, started listening to his music and and paying attention. Uh, and, and, and checking also at what people used to write about him and, and it's really beautiful. And then my, my, my great aunt Elsa, his sister, she has been my piano teacher since I was a, a child. Oh wow. Until the day I left Peru. She she was very important in my musical development. That's amazing. Um I wanna talk a little bit more about your family, but I'd love to hear a song first. What's the first song you're gonna play for us? Um, well, since we're talking about it, it can be Canción para Otto y Elsa. Mm, great. And this is dedicated to them, I, I imagine. Yes. Okay. Well, here we go. Sergio Dia de Rojas live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
welcome back to Snacky Tunes. And that was just such a beautiful piece. And, you know, coming from a family of musicians, not just one person or two, but a whole family in the way that you did has got to be very special. When did you first fall in love with music and making music? And were you pressured or did you feel that you had to go into professional music making or was your family like, you can love music, but this cannot be your life? Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough that there was really not not much um, uh, external influence. It, it was, at the end, all about my, my own decisions. Um, I think I fell in love with music when, when I started, be, start, started studying uh, classical piano when I was 11. My aunt taught me pieces by Chopin, Bach, uh, Debussy, Mozart, etc. And I really found um, so much beauty in it. And even if I'm not really that good of an of a academic pianist, mm. um, I have always anyway enjoyed uh, performing these this composers' works. Um, and then when I was around 18 or 19, I started composing. Mm. And, and that was because... I really wanted to spend my life making music, but I didn't want to be a, a, a classically trained pianist. Mm. I didn't want to be part of, of that world. It, it didn't make me happy. So I was kind of lost uh, trying to find what, how to spend my life making music, but with something that I actually want. And, and around that time, I came across the works of, of composers like Niels Fram, Olaf mm-hmm. Arnold, mm-hmm. Jan and and... And for the first time, I saw that there were people alive making music, writing this kind of music that has some sort of connection to classical music, but that is still so contemporary, so relatable. And that's when I dared to to also compose, and it happened so like naturally. And yeah, I have been composing since then. I mean, I can see the parallels and the inspiration between those artists that you listed, because you do have that same lightness and sort of sparseness but feels very rich and and warm and very emotional um before we get away from your family it's very rare that we talk to people who have such a big musical love um what were the family gatherings like was there like a lot of food a lot of music i have in my mind this like it's like you're at a house and someone's on the piano and someone's singing and someone's cooking like Take you know what? What was like a family get together like? Is was I, I, am I imagining something that's more like <laughs> like a Disney Hollywood version of it, or or is that what it was like? No, it, it's really what it was like. <laughs> um, I have a very special memory from when I was a kid, from when my parents bought the the, the piano, the first piano we had, and so we made. Uh, I think it was my mom's birthday that she invited everyone um, to, mm. to, to our apartment. And it was my grandpa, my great aunt, and uh, all the family, all the cousins, all the uncles and aunts. And there was a moment where they were playing like six people on the piano, oh. just improvising. And, uh, you know, a random person was just drinking a little bit of wine. Then they got close to the piano and started improvising like it's so easy and then left again. It, it was really beautiful and, and fun. I love that. I love that. And it seems like even though maybe some of your family was rooted in a little bit more classical or traditional type of writing music, were they supportive when you discovered your own style, your own voice, and and said, this is the direction I want to go in? Yes, absolutely. My my great aunt, that it's such a... 
amazing classically trained pianist. She she was probably my my supporter number one, mm. and and actually having that kind of background is very important to 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 have more resources and, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah when, when composing. And I mean, my my grandpa it was a popular musician. He made salsa and Latin jazz. What was kind his of name? Things. Otto de Rojas. Mm-hmm. So he there was like. Uh, a bit of both worlds in in the family, but having that foundation and understanding your fundamentals, and then building off of that, I think is indicative of the music you make because it's rooted in this very strong base of knowledge. I, I think so. I, I I never really think about it. Um, I always thought that that my influences could be more connected to to the contemporary composers that that and this community I'm part of. But then sometimes I hear people saying that they hear some sort of uh, Peruvian vibe in my music, uh, or that they hear a lot of Chopin, which is because of my aunt's influence. And I just it's it's just nice to to know the kind of perception people have. Uh, it's personally not something I really think too much about. It's there. It's a, it's yeah. it's subconsciously or unconsciously. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, let's hear another song. Um, what do you want to play for us next? What do you have? What's the story behind it? Um, Flores secas en un jarrón hecho a mano. And what's the story behind this this track? Um, this this piece refers to the action of pressing and drying flowers. Um, I it symbolizes these little things in life that um, through the years I have learned to to appreciate, and that make. Um, bring so much beauty into my everyday life amazing well here we have another song live from sergio diaz de rojas here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network Thank you. 
Welcome back to Snappy Tunes. And digging into your work, and I know we talked a little bit about this at the top, even though you've this is your second album, you've done so much collaboration over the years. And what really struck me was your collaboration across different mediums, a lot of film work, and I see it a lot in the videos you made for your music as well. How do these partnerships come about? What do you like about working within the medium of film? What inspires you in matching your music to something more visual? Um, I, I it, it just happens naturally. Since since the very first uh, release I, I I I made in 2015 with my first album, I I was somehow obsessed with the idea of not only having the music out, but that it should be accompanied by illustrations and music videos and poetry. Um, it just felt right since the music is instrumental and and there's not an obvious way to 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 understand what i'm trying to say with it uh other than the title i felt that maybe having all this audiovisual support around it could be a good way to to help people really understand what what i was trying to say um in case they were interested in it, in it of course because sometimes it's also nice to just listen to the music and create your own uh, idea of what it is about mm-hmm. and relate mm-hmm. to it and that's also precious so both options right so for those that just want to enjoy the music or those that want to dig more into the concept of of, of, of it and I mean the collaborations mostly happen by by happy accidents. <laughs> Sometimes it's people that I met on Tumblr many years ago oh, or yeah. on Instagram. I mean, if you're saying Tumblr, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, um, or Instagram or yeah, 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 yeah. Just doing research online on Vimeo, I have also come across wonderful mm. uh, filmmakers. Um, yeah, it's it just happens, and very grateful for it. Now you mentioned that you. Um, were in Peru uh, and you have now moved to Spain. Yes. Um, what wanted you to make that move? Were you looking for new inspiration? What drew you to Spain? Was some of the collaborations you're doing based um, in and around the area you moved to? What brought you there? Um, well, um the main reason is that it's almost kind of impossible to make a living as a musician or, or any sort of artist in, in Peru. Mm. It's not really that. Um, it's difficult everywhere in the world. Yeah. But uh, in Europe, you have definitely way more chances than, than, than in Peru. Especially, I, I have never had, you know, a, a specific contacts inside the media or um, or the music venues where, where one can make uh, shows. And so... It was pretty much being alone and, and fighting against the, the bubbles that already exist, right, in, in, in the music community in Lima, no matter the, the music style. Um, so I thought that maybe moving to, to Europe, where I already had some connections to some record labels and, mm. and, and, and mm-hmm. concert series and some other composers, uh, could be the, 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 the best move for, for my career. Um, also... In a not not music music related uh, topic, I, I was never so happy in 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 my hometown. It's mm. I, I grew up, you know, playing the music of European composers and then studying French and 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 watching Euro- independent European cinema and and that was the kind of things I was uh, uh, nourishing myself with and and I wanted more more of that and I didn't feel so happy and comfortable in 
in the environment I had uh, in Peru. But now that you've had time and space removed from where you grew up, does a little bit of nostalgia wash over it? And you go like, oh, I sort of miss this. Oh, I still, still love that. Do you yearn for your home country at times? Yes, yes. Uh, happens all the time. Uh, everybody <laughs> yeah. told me that would happen and I would laugh about it. And then it, it actually happened. Um, I mostly miss my family because my yeah, parents, my little sister, uh, my, my great aunt Elsa, everybody's there. Um, and then, of course, I miss uh, some specific places. There's this district called Varanco, which is like the artistic Bohemian part of the city. There's actually one a piece in the album dedicated to to, the, to that place where I spent my most crea- creative years mm. uh, in, in Peru and uh, playing shows, meeting other artists and uh, working as a barista, serving coffee. Um, it was a really nice period of, 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 of my life to, to explore a bit more, to learn a bit more. And yeah, so there's definitely things I, I miss a lot about about Peru. I mean, do you miss the food? Have you found some replacements in Spain? I mean, it's nothing wrong with Spanish food culture. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a food nerd, so I, I love trying all sorts of, of foods everywhere I go. Um, and I can I can luckily cook Peruvian food here because there's a huge Peruvian community. So you go to the central market, you find yes. all the right ingredients, yeah. and, and you can cook. Then also Spanish food is delicious. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes it's not so as cheap, <laughs> right, to, to yeah. cook uh, food that I used to eat there, but I, I try to do it as often as possible. Let me ask, what are you cooking? Where are you eating? What I am Sorry? Cooking? Ah, yeah. Uh, when I cook Peruvian food, um, I'm making like lomo saltado, ají de gallina. A couple of times we tried making ceviche, which is like my favorite dish, but that was not so su- successful. <laughs> um, and then I cook a lot of uh, Italian food. Um, I, I've also recently learned to, uh, to cook goulash from, from Hungary. Oh, that's my people's food. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice goulash. Oh, yeah. Some crusty bread. Yes, please. Yes, yes, yes. It was so... I, I went to Hungary as part of of, of, of a tour and and I tried the food. I, I fell in love and then I was like, I have to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great food. Great food for the wintertime. Yes. Um, so listen, I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song, but album's coming out and you're also playing some shows. What's the rest of the year or the next few months look like for you? Well, there is a, a spring tour. I'm playing to a couple of uh, to shows in Barcelona next week. Well, mm-hmm. this week actually, uh, and there are all sold out, which is really exciting. Um, and then I'm going to uh, Denmark, then Sweden, and then Germany. Um, wow! Then I will have a little pause because I'm in the process of moving from Spain to Germany, and I have to get some bureaucracy paperwork done. Oh. Uh, uh, wait, but, uh, are, you, are you moving to Berlin? Uh, no, no, to, to Dusseldorf. Uh, <laughs> oh, with, Dusseldorf. With my wife, she's German. Okay. Um, I'm like, I'm going there um, to reunite with her. Um, I mean, German summers are a lot of fun. Uh, yes, yes. it's And it's not as hot as in Spain, which no. I'm grateful for. Yes, yes, and, yes, yes. Well, and then there will be more concerts uh, on the ne- second half of the year, but those... Mm remained uh, to be and then, 
festivals as well, correct? Yes, in, in Czech Republic, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Germany as well. So there, we will announce that <laughs> eventually. Okay, I will, I will spoil it. Um, listen, um, before we get the last song, if people want to listen to the album, which comes out again, actually it'll be out by the time this airs because this episode is going to air on the 12th. So your album will be out by the time people, where can they go listen? Where can they go share your wonderful music? Well, they can find it on, on Spotify, Apple Music, and any other streaming platform. It's also available on, on Bandcamp, on my own Bandcamp for digital downloads, and on Oscar Oscarson's uh, Bandcamp for limited edition vinyl. Ooh, this is a nice vinyl. This will be a nice vinyl to have and support Bandcamp. Shout out to them. Um, all right, what's the last song you want to play for us? What's the story behind it? Uh, it's um, Atardecer. Orillas del Mar, which is the 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 closing uh, track of the album, it's it symbolizes death. Well, there we go, and what a great way to close this show, Sergio. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations again. Thank you so much for 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 this for for, for the opportunity to to talk a bit, and um, yeah, hope people will enjoy this new record. I I have no doubt they will. Thank you to George for setting this up and thank you for Kevin and Amber and congratulations to Stack Steiner as well. Here we go one last time. Sergio Diaz de Rojas live on Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. We see you next week.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.